If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The first half of the 20th century is often talked about as a golden age of archaeology, a time marked by thrilling finds like those of Tutankhamun's tomb and the ship burial at Sutton Hoo. But was it really as golden as we might wish to believe? Speaking to Kev Lochin, archaeologist and historian Dr Helene Malawanya answers your questions on this extraordinary period, spanning colonialism, the ethics of excavation and why the field is still reeling from the damage done by one Indiana Jones. We're here recording an Everything You Want to Know podcast about the golden age of archaeology and I suppose... The best place to start with is with a question that came from Instagram from Dilgaboy. When was it and why is it so called? Well, that's a really good question. It really is a, quite a fluid term and lots of people use it differently. But usually what we mean by that is the first half of the 20th century AD. So especially the interwar period, the period between the First and the Second World War. And it's often called that because the range of discoveries that were made in this time was so vast and there was a great expansion in the way that archaeology was conducted. So there were finds of Neanderthals in Palestine, Sutton Hoo in the UK, and many different discoveries across Central America and Asia. And archaeologists also began to think of themselves more as a profession. And there were more university courses and posts that became available, conferences were established and journals. So there was a sort of an explosion in the development of archaeology in that particular period. But people also think about gold. Of course, it's also called 
gold because lots of gold was found at the time. And so the idea of archaeology as treasure seeking or treasure hunting also plays into this. And that is often thought of in the context of the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun in Egypt, which, of course, there was lots of gold in that. So there was a, this made a very big impression on the public and on archaeologists. And that is usually why this period is called the golden age of archaeology. Tutankhamun is definitely my touchstone for this kind of period. But that's such an interesting idea, because in my head, when I thought of Golden Age, I was thinking of a time of like prosperity and advance. But how strongly is that sense of literal gold tied into it? I think more than people want, or uh, let's say archaeologists want to acknowledge, because this is still something that fascinates the public quite a lot. And also lots of archaeologists are very fascinated by the idea of treasure and finding something unique. So I think that's still quite a big aspect of the fascination that archaeology still holds for those of us who are archaeologists and for those of us who are just interested. And it's probably worth covering off as well, where in the world is this happening? Is this centred on one particular region or is it a bit more global and spread? I think it's everywhere. I mean, well, maybe except the South Pole, but for European audiences, I think we often think about so the area that's closest to our hearts, so Egypt, Rome and Greece. There was, of course, a, quite a lot going on in archaeology in Britain at the time as well. But really, it's everywhere. It's Central America. It's, a lot is happening then. Peru, uh, if you think of the ancient Incas, if you think of Asia, China, Africa, it really is a global age of archaeology. Could you give us a bit of a flavour of that? Because I think when people think of famous archaeology, it's like parking that man with the hat and the whip, um, <laughs> who may or may not isn't that real. You know, we do think of those big points. Who are the most famous archaeologists in this time? Who, if I was living in that time, who would I have heard about and wanted to hear about? You would have definitely heard of Howard Carter, who led the excavation of the tomb of Tutankhamun. I think for readers and listeners in the West, at least, that was the big man of archaeology at the time. But I think that is also a little bit skewed by our interest in the history of the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun. So at the time, you definitely also would have known Leonard Woolley, who was excavating Iraq at, in, in Ur at the time. And he was a great publicist of his own work. He wrote lots of newspaper articles. He was on the radio when the BBC radio was very new, medium as well. People in the UK would really have known Mortimer Wheeler, and his wife Tessa Wheeler as well, who were excavating in the UK. And later in India, you would have known Flinders Petrie, William Flinders Petrie, an Egyptologist who excavated countless sites in Egypt and was also very good at publicising his work. You also would have perhaps known Dorothy Garrett, who was the first woman in the UK to become a professor of archaeology at Cambridge. I think these would have probably been the big names not necessarily all the names that we archaeologists would like the public to remember, but these are the names that were in the news, that were in the media, they were talking about their work, they were good at going on the radio, and, well, there was no TV yet, but who were good at talking about their work and publicising their own work. Well, this leads into some of our reader questions who would like to know a bit more about the people and profession. So on Instagram, MHFQ asked, who was the first person to be described as an archaeologist? Uh, that's a really difficult question because it, again, is something that we now as historians, we talk about archaeologists, who was an archaeologist. But at the time, people who we now think of as archaeologists didn't necessarily describe themselves in that way. So many people, for example, think of St. Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine as the patron saint of archaeology, because she went to Jerusalem to excavate the, the Holy Cross, but she did not think of herself in that way. And it also really depends on what you mean by archaeology. 
do you mean archaeology as a profession, as somebody that is defined by certain standards? People have always been interested in their past and for a long time, well, at least an, an interest in ancient or older cultures can be found in many cultures around the world who do not have or do not consider themselves to have an archaeology as such. But if you want to think about archaeologists as a scientific or as a scholarly endeavour, I think we often look to the 17th century in the UK, where people like William Stukeley or John Aubrey took an interest in their surroundings. And this beginning of archaeology as a profession or as a study of the past is very much connected to looking at the countryside and looking at the land that you live in and how it interacts with how we as humans interact with it and what we build on it. And so they were the ones who discovered the stone circle of Avebury um, in the 17th century and started exploring Stonehenge as an archaeological site. And so if you were to pick up a history of archaeology in a bookshop, this is probably who you would come across as the first, first archaeologists. And this kind of ties back into something you mentioned earlier about professional archaeologists. When does archaeology become recognised as a profession rather than some English chaps bumbling around the countryside and finding stones and going, oh yeah, that's nice. <laughs> well, people started to talking about themselves as archaeologists in the sort of, let's say, the mid-19th century, more or less. There was, of course, an overlap with antiquarianism and with art history, with travelling, the Grand Tour and things like that. So as a profession, again, it depends on how you define that profession. When did you, for example, when was it possible to study archaeology at university? That really wasn't possible until the very early 20th century. People like Mortimer Wheeler or Howard Carter or Leonard Woolley didn't study archaeology at university. They became archaeologists by practicing. And then they were the ones who founded archaeology as a profession. So I think there's also a big change in the early 20th century and archaeologists started describing themselves as professional archaeologists. And I think in Britain we have this great tradition of of being an amateur, and that is being worth more than being a professional, especially in the 19th century, when especially men of the upper or upper middle classes looked down on people who had to work for their living, and it was much more important to be a gentleman scholar and to be have the leisure to carry out experiments or to be scientists. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So let's talk about it a bit more because Catherine0411 on Instagram would really love to know how non-professional archaeologists impacted the growth and status of archaeology. So you talked about that kind of like gentleman scholar almost. Do we see a bit of a shift as the gentleman scholar gives way to the inverted commas professional? I think absolutely. We we see a what is described as sort of a, a boundary work that happens in archaeology in that by trying to become professionals, you have to exclude certain people who are amateurs or who are hobbyists or whatever you want to call them and however you want to think of these terms. So that happens in the early 20th century when archaeologists think we need to become more professional. We need to have university posts. We need to teach. We need to have conferences. We need to have journals. And that excludes a certain kind of people. And I think in the late 20th century, we see a shift back from that to including more people, becoming more sort of embracing public archaeology and that now we value this kind of thing more so if you think for example in the UK many metal detectorists whether they think of themselves as archaeologists or not they still make very important discoveries to this day that contribute quite a lot to our knowledge of the past and yeah I know it's a controversial subject but I still think that it's very important to include members of the public and amateurs into the history of archaeology and lots of important discoveries also were made by non-archaeologists For example, you know, the French cave with the paintings dating back to 19,000 years ago of Lascaux, the cave paintings, that was found by a young man. He was walking with his dog and he just happened upon this cave. And now this is this amazing discovery that, you know, has revolutionized the way we think about the past. And it's important to not make the history of archaeology just about professional archaeologists. I mean, here's a controversial question. Then are detectorists archaeologists? (laughs) <laughs> I think that's up to each of them. If they if they think of themselves as archaeologists, then why not? I have no problem with this. Archaeology is not just excavation. I think it's also important to remember that. It's, archaeology is not defined. It's often thought about as you need to excavate in order to be an archaeologist, but it's absolutely not true. There's many different ways of doing archaeology. There's lots of people who, for example, have a I don't know, lecture in archaeology at university post, but they don't excavate. You can work in museums, you can work with collections, you can work with archives, you can work with the public, with communities. You don't need to excavate, you don't need to make a hole in the ground in order to be an archaeologist. Really, you don't. On the theme of exclusion, so a couple of people asked questions in this theme, so HH Homemade and Becca Grant 91 both on Instagram. They wanted to know whether there were any female archaeologists in the era or whether it was a field dominated by men. I know you mentioned Dorothy Garrett. Is she an outlier in this or is it just there were more women archaeologists who weren't quite as well known? Um, She's an outlier in the sense of that she had this university post at Cambridge, which almost nobody else achieved at the time. But there were probably the same amount of women working in archaeology as there were men at the time. But again, if you don't lead your own excavation or you don't publish, then you're often not remembered in the history of archaeology. So there were lots of other archaeologists, for example, Catherine Woolley, Leonard Woolley's wife, Tessa Wheeler, Mortimer Wheeler's wife, Hilda Petrie, Flinders Petrie's wife, who 
were also archaeologists. They also worked on the excavations, they oversaw the work, they helped with the publications, with the recording of the finds, or the drawing, or the reconstruction, or the conservation. Um, but because they haven't published anything, or nothing that we remember, we don't think about them as archaeologists. And again, you don't need to <laughs> excavate in order to be an archaeologist. I think that's also, really, again, really important to remember that, again, it's this sort of climate of creating an exclusive club that happens at the time that excludes not only women, but also people from other countries, people of different races, of different genders, that are often not remembered or not included in this very exclusive club, often European and American men. Tell me more about that. So if you think about, for example, if you were to excavate in, in Egypt or in Iraq, you didn't bring your whole team. You hired people on the spot to work for you. And often these people had significant amounts of experience with excavation, but again, they're not remembered as archaeologists. So for example, Leonard Woolley worked with Miss, who's the man who's often remembered as his foreman or as his main fixer for 40 years. So this man had 40 years experience in archaeology, but if you talk about him or if people write about him, they always talk a bit about him as Leonard Woolley's foreman. But actually he had a crucial role. He was probably more like the field director or the co-director of the project. But we don't think about it in that way. So it's not just about including women, but it's including all kinds of different communities and about um, including also the people perhaps who cooked they're also part of the team. So what is it about archaeology that wants to create this exclusive club and also wants to make it very, very narrow and everybody has to look like the man with the hat and the whip in order to be an archaeologist, right? So it's about opening up and thinking about archaeology differently as something that happens in a collaborative space and that it's not possible to just do it on your own. You have to have a team and you have to rely on other people. What I'm hearing you say here is 40 years of experience and yet in that time still not considered an archaeologist, even though. Even though, exactly. And he was ne his name was never appeared on any of the publications. And I think that is also something that, you know, this idea of publish or perish, I don't know if pe people are familiar with that term, that if you don't publish anything, if you don't write about your findings and you publicize them, then nobody will remember you and it doesn't matter what you did. So if you worked in archaeology for 40 years, but you didn't publish a book about it, does that mean it didn't happen? You know, this is a really good segue into what is probably quite a meaty question from Holly Dolly Duta on Instagram, who asks, was there a link between the golden age of archaeology and colonialism? Most certainly. Really, there is, especially in the eastern Mediterranean and northern Africa, where in the interwar period, so France and Britain had expanded their empires after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War and acquired the so-called mandates of Syria and Lebanon, Palestine, Transjordan and Iraq, the countries that are now independent countries. And archaeologists played a vital role in establishing those mandates and in administering archaeology afterwards. So many archaeologists had served in the war, either at the front or in military intelligence. So they had a really good knowledge of the region, of the people, and they had often worked in that area before the war. So this is why they joined military intelligence in the first place. So they had all those connections and they had all those networks in colonial administration. And they often used this, not necessarily in a, in a malicious way, but this is just the way that it was done, to obtain excavation permits and to get favorable treatment in getting access to those to those countries. So for example in Iraq, Gertrude Bell became the honorary director of antiquities, John Garstang in Palestine, there was Henri Serig in Syria and Lebanon. These were all archaeologists before the war. And 
then they became administrators in the colonies and wrote the antiquities legislation that allowed them and their colleagues and their museums uh, in Europe and America to access those sites. So archaeology is very much implicated in the colonial and imperial history of, especially of France and Britain. That sounds incredibly self-serving. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I think it's it's a really complicated subject that is also then to do with who owns the past. If you think about the way that we in Europe think about our past, so do we think about Greece as you know our intellectual forebears? Do we think about the Middle East as the cradle of civilization? But if it's our civilization, so-called, does that mean we own that past? And does that mean we get to control how we think about it, how we excavate it, and how we interpret it. And if we have political and administrative and colonial military control over these areas, that also means we can have, we can control what happens to its culture and to its civilizations and the way that they are thought about it. And again, you also have to think about it, archaeologists at the time were trying to become a profession. So they were, of course, in a very self-serving manner, thought, hey, I need a job, I need to earn money, I know these and these people. Let me try and get an excavation permit. Publish or perish, right? Exactly, yes, yes. We talked about France and Britain and their kind of like expanding empires as part of that. So this is a question from Waterfist on Instagram that I'm slightly paraphrasing. Was there any sense that the rivalries between France and Britain or any other colonial powers is influencing the work that the archaeologist is trying to do? I think so. I think if we look a little bit early into the 19th century, I think that is a, a lot more visible, especially between, again, France and Britain and later Germany, when Germany unifies into an empire. There is a sort of a race for the discovery, especially in Egypt and what is now Iraq. So if you think about Nineveh or Nimrud or Assur, the big near Assyrian cities of the first millennium BC, there is a, a very open competition between those powers that are either giving money to people to go and excavate there and bring back stuff for the museums, so for the British Museum, for the Louvre, or what is now the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. And the press participates in this very much. And if the British get something first before the French, they celebrate it in this way. We say, look at the French, they lost. So there is very much this idea of this is a race for the past. There was usually multiple countries excavating in any, any country. So for example, in Egypt, there were British excavations, German, French, um, American. But it's also important to think about that it's not necessarily the British government or the French government who, who funds these excavations. It's, it's much more subtle than this. It's either some money comes from museums, sometimes money comes from governments, but often it doesn't. So it's up to the archaeologists or the excavators to, to find the money themselves, to find private sponsors. So again, it becomes sort of this idea that you as a private sponsor are supporting your country in excavating or in giving money to a private individual. So it's not necessarily government-sponsored, as it often is today, or university-sponsored. It's much more on a private basis as well. So yes, there's countless excavations happening. And archaeology at the time, especially in the interval period, is also very international. So it's quite often the case that you would have American University, for example, sponsoring um, an excavation in Egypt, and that project director would be Dutch, and then there would be French people on, on the team or and... and British and German, and they often work together as an international team. So after the First War, World War War, the sort of imperial competition becomes a little bit less. And I think that is also much more an international age, generally speaking. So a couple of people 
and this is Neil Eads on Threads and Maria von Rumer on Instagram, would like to know, was there and or how much damage was done in the interest of archaeology? I feel this could be quite a big one. (laughs) It can be quite a big one. Um, So, sure, lots of damage has been done in the search for treasure, I think, especially if people are looking to find precious objects, especially in graves or tombs. And even people who we now think of as archaeologists were quite scrupulous in their methods of going through tombs and finding things and not thinking about what it means if you excavate a dead person's resting place and what happens to those human remains also especially. So a lot of damage has been done, material damage, shall we say, to the objects, to the structures, but again also in the name of archaeology, especially conducted abroad, of the image that archaeology can have in the public as, you know, just smash and grab and go and find things and bring it back to to your museums. I think that kind of damage is much more difficult to, to quantify than the damage to to a building or to tombs. It's interesting because we're kind of in this age now where museums are being asked to look at what they have and whether these things should remain in said museums. Is there a point in within this kind of this period where artifacts are being recovered? Um, this is from George Haig on Facebook, who asked whether the local kind of governments at the time, or local people, I suppose, did they ever protest this kind of is he phrases it plundering of their heritage. I mean, was that something that always existed or is this a more modern phenomenon, do you think? I think it always existed. I think it's difficult to understand the forms that these protests often took. So if you, for example, if you want to go a little bit back in time, think about when Lord Elgin went to the Parthenon and got the Parthenon marbles that are now in the British Museum, he probably did so with the permission of the Ottoman Imperial Court and Greece at the time, what is now Greece was part of the Ottoman Empire. So there was he had the permission to do it, but the local residents probably did not agree with this and did protest against it. And I think he had difficulty finding people to actually do the work for him because they didn't want to do it. But then the way that this is often described in Western sources is as ignorant or uneducated or superstitious communities who don't understand the value of science and, and so forth. So this kind of protest, I think, was always there. If it becomes official or if local governments under colonial rule have the power to protest against it, that is something that happens a little bit later, so shall we say, perhaps in the interwar period and post-war period, when these nation-states start to think of themselves as nation-states in the modern sense. And the idea that what is a nation-state? You need to have a shared past, And in order to create that shared past, you need archaeology. So you need to think about what is it that unites people? And if it's the past that unites them, then they want to be in charge of that past. But in order for that to become official, I think, again, it needs these kind of modern governmental structures in order to voice that opposition. And will you be drawn on where you think the uh, Elgin marble should go? (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, I don't think there's really any question about that. They should go back, in my opinion. How that happens is, of course, an extremely complicated question. It's it's so expensive. But there's no doubt in my mind that they should go back to where they came from. Even if you were to think about, you know, there is now a museum to to home them. This was often the, the argument that, you know, the Greeks can't look after them, which, of course, is nonsense. There, they should really be 
in their original location, in my opinion. One more question in kind of the modern age, which comes from Craig Alexander-Stewart on Facebook. And he asked whether there are any particular examples of contemporary archaeology acknowledging that there are some sites that we should just leave untouched for now. I think the best known is probably the mausoleum of the first Qin emperor in China. People might be familiar with the terracotta army, which I think is the most iconic find from that site. It's a huge site that has the terracotta army and a vast tomb complex. And the tomb complex itself has never been excavated because the Chinese government has decided that they don't have the resources or the knowledge to actually do so. So it's quite an interesting and intriguing site that we... I think lots of things can be learned from that particular site and about the way that that was approached at the time in the 1970s. Is that like a practical consideration or more of a kind of like a moral qualm? I think it was both. It's a practical consideration in the sense of that they didn't have, or the Chinese government at the time decided they didn't have the ability to decide which part they should excavate first. And they, since they didn't really know what was going to be inside it, did they, would they have the resources to conserve things? Um, would they have the storage space? Because it's huge, the terracotta army itself alone is thousands of objects. What do you do with them? You have to keep them somewhere. And I think it's also thinking about, do we really need to excavate everything? Do we really need to know everything? Or can we leave some things alone? I think this is something at least I struggle with as an archaeologist. Can we stop excavating burials? Should we just not disturb those kinds of places anymore? Well, I mean, you've posed some quite big questions throughout the course of our chat. What do you think the biggest question facing archaeology right now is? I think, well, it's that. Should we continue excavating specifically tombs? That is something that I find an interesting question. How do we excavate abroad ethically? How do we engage communities? And I think also how do we... What happens when an excavation is finished? What happens with a site? Who pays for preservation? who pays for community engagement, who is responsible for funding these measures that are often quite difficult, quite expensive, and in areas of the site where there's, that are very much affected by climate change. What is the long-term goals of archaeology in that sense? It can't be just excavating, finding things, and then leaving. We need to think about the future. Absolutely. Although my next question is actually going to take us back into the past. We're going back to the golden age. Another question from Neil Leeds on Freds and also Michelle Kay on Facebook. They both wanted to know, this kind of does come into the present, is how did techniques and the general approach to archaeology in the golden age compare to modern archaeology today? So have we got any better, I suppose, at being more sustainable and ethical in the manner you were just describing? I think in some areas of the world, definitely. I think it very much varies across the globe. So archaeology at the time, yes, it was about objects, it was about finding spectacular finds, but there's also quite a lot happening in that period of archaeology as a technique, as a methodology and as a science. So lots of developments happening in excavation technique and what is many people call now the Wheeler Kenyan method is where you excavate a site, you make a grid across the site, you sort of make squares, and then you excavate only certain squares in that site, and you don't try and expose as much as possible. That think, helps you think about the three-dimensionality of a site or where objects come from. So this is something that is developed in the interwar period, and that has a long-lasting effect on how we do archaeology today. 
There's also quite a lot of developments in conservation techniques in the interwar period that people don't often talk about. So the way that things are conserved. So archaeologists were often working with um, chemists and museum professionals to find the best way to preserve objects. And that is also something that develops quite rapidly uh, in that period. So I think the general approach to archaeology changed in that particular period and has had a uh, long-lasting effect on how we do it today. I think attitudes about working abroad or working with descendant communities took a little bit longer to change. I think that is something that we only saw in the last maybe 30 years really change. And again, it really depends also where you look at and where in the world. Things are very different in America, um, for example, working with First Nations or Native Americans. Those kind of relationships between archaeologists and descendant communities are very different than if you think about a Paleolithic site in France where you're excavating cave dwellings of 20,000 years ago. It is a lot to juggle, isn't it? As a way of, you know, drawing our chat to conclusion, I thought I'd go back for a slightly more light-hearted question from Joe Brown on Facebook. And they would like to know, which archaeologist from the Golden Age has the closest resemblance to the man with the hat and the whip, Indiana Jones? <laughs> oh, what a question. Well, probably none and all of them at the same time. Um, I think it's very important to remember that our, um, Indiana Jones is a fictional character. It's not a documentary. And when um, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were first thinking about this character, they actually wanted to make him a historian, which I'm not sure it would have been quite as interesting or quite as much action as an archaeologist. So he's a mashup of very different figures from their own imagination, from the films that they watched from the periods. Also, there's a lot of actually Western sort of language in that adventure and western films of the 50s um so i think the people that i mentioned howard carter or mortimer wheeler or leonard woolley these men who are very good at creating this image of the archaeologist as somebody who goes abroad and finds spectacular things i think these people certainly played into it but there is no one inspiration i think who is closer to to indiana johnson than any of the others well let me put it to you a slightly different way because for my money Surely being compared to Indiana Jones isn't really a positive step if you like literally Indiana Jones because he he it's almost likely to bring something back with a bullet hole in it as you know <laughs> anything else. Um, yes, I, it's very difficult I think for us to try and understand what the image of archaeology would be without Indiana Jones if films if they hadn't happened. I don't don't I don't think we can know this. So yes, it's terrible. He's you know, he just goes somewhere, he takes things, he doesn't care whether, you know, the giant stone rolling after him destroys in the entire structure. There's a lot of violence. He's a government agent. He's an antiquity smuggler. He probably flirts with his students, all of the things that you really shouldn't do. But, I mean, he's, you know, he's handsome. He's strong. He has what seems to be very secure employment, way past retirement age. That is something that we all really hope for. He gets to see exciting places around the world. All of these things, you know, are, are desirable. But many archaeologists really, really struggle with Indiana Jones, and so do I. And I think it's great the way that it has brought archaeology to the, to the public eye. But this kind of like hyper-masculinity, this idea that, yes, you need to have a whip and a hat in order to be an archaeologist... I think that has really created a lot of damage in the field and in the way that people think about it. And again, these kind of like behaviors that, of course, are come out of a very specific moment of American history, post-Vietnam, World War, action films, Rambo, all of these things play into the character of Indiana Jones that is now seen as this icon of archaeology 
when really if you were to watch Time Team or Digging for Britain or if you watch a film like The Dig on Netflix, there's a, there's a lot more realistic about what being an archaeologist is like and what, what it can look like as well, physically and, I think, ethically. That was Dr Helene Malawanya, Associate Editor at the Bulletin of the History of Archaeology and Lecturer in History at the University of Greenwich. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.